0: Today's show is brought to you by Airtable, the all-in-one collaboration platform. Being a modern media business is complicated. Maintaining a functional editorial calendar is hard. Wrangling writers and editors, copy edits and social, all on deadline can get messy fast. Believe me, it's hard. Most collaboration tools aren't made for creatives and creative projects, but Airtable is. Airtable makes it easy to organize stuff, people, ideas, anything you can imagine. That's why leading creative teams at places like BuzzFeed Studios, Group 9 Media, and Time all use Airtable. It's flexible enough to adapt to your process, but powerful enough to keep everything on schedule and let creative people be creative. Visit Airtable.com Digiday today to get $50 in free credits. Thank you, Airtable. Hello and welcome to the Digiday Podcast. I'm Brian Morrissey. This week I am joined by Nick Thompson. Nick is the editor-in-chief of Wired. He is a second-time guest on this podcast. He previously joined me about a year ago when he was the editor of TheNewYorker.com. I wanted to have Nick back for a couple reasons. One is he recently co-authored a big Wired cover story on Facebook spending the last two years in a bit of an identity crisis. The story came out just last week before Robert Mueller announced that he was indicting 13 Russian nationals for meddling in the election. We talk about the genesis of this story and how Facebook is still undergoing this identity crisis, what it means when the world of Silicon Valley collides with the world of Washington, and why Nick is ultimately optimistic about Facebook's interests aligning with publishers' interests. By the way, on that subject, if you're interested in these types of issues, and I assume you are because you're listening to this podcast, please consider joining Digiday Plus, that is our premium membership program, as part of your membership, in addition to original research and exclusive content. You'll get an invite to our Slack town halls. We're having one this Friday at 1 p.m. I'm going to be joined by our executive editor, Lucia Moses, and other Digiday editors for a members-only discussion about how Google is cozying up to publishers in the wake of Facebook's rocky relationship with the media. To join Digiday Plus, visit digiday.com and click on the Digiday Plus tab in the menu bar. Here's my conversation with Nick. Nick, welcome to the podcast. Thanks, delighted to be here. Okay, so you're coming off a couple of big things. One was a gargantuan cover story that you co-wrote with Fred Vogelstein called mm-hmm. Inside, two years that shook Facebook in the world. Mm-hmm. Um, and also... Rolling out the new wired paywall. Yep. Meter. So I want to talk about how those things actually relate. But first, let's talk about the genesis of this story because this is this is a big one.
1: Yeah, it's a big story. I've been interested in Facebook for years, uh, of course, right? I've been interested in it as a political force. I've been interested in its role on the media, uh, like everybody else. I was captivated by the role it played in the twenty sixteen election. So I've always had that strong interest and. I know a lot of people at Facebook. Fred, who's been covering technology in Silicon Valley for two decades, um, is really sourced up on people there as well. And so he got interested in the Facebook journalism project, the sort of outward-facing Facebook effort to work more with the media. So he was talking about, well, why don't we do a story about that? And I was like, well, I don't know. I think we kind of need to do a story about everything. And so we joined forces. He and I worked together eight years ago on a story about um, Google. And so we knew we worked really well together, and we just got cracking.
0: Okay, so the big takeaway seems to be Facebook is Lenny. <laughs> it has. I, um, I know you and David Remnick were talking about this on his podcast, so I guess, on Friday. But I think that is the sort of resonant. They stumbled into this in some ways to being this overweening force, not just in media, but in society. And, and they sort of came Came to grips with the fact that some of this is, is not that good. Yeah,
1: I think that's so a Lenny for those of you. Uh, it's a reference to John Stombeck's *Mice and Men*, and it's the character who's just too strong for his own good. Um, and one of the people I, uh, one of the people we talked to at Facebook said that watching Zuckerberg after the election, they were reminded of Lenny, and that quote has resonated. But I think the the point is absolutely right. What happened is they didn't get into the news business with an expectation that they would become the most powerful force in American media. They got in it because they wanted to quash Twitter. Right? Facebook is very good at quashing threats, and they saw Twitter rising. They saw that it was getting a lot of action from its influence on news and the way news spread on it, so they you know, basically tried to recreate Twitter inside of Facebook. They did it very well, as they do everything, and so they generated tons of power, and suddenly they control the flow of news in America, and the problem is when you do that, there are all kinds of consequences.
0: Right. I mean, you talk about them as a company that dominated media but didn't want to be a media company. Right.
1: It was kind of like one of the ways I like to put it is that they woke up one morning and realized, oh, no, we own the news.
0: Okay. And... We saw a lot of the negative implications of this, I think, that they keep coming out with the election. Yeah. I mean, this, y- your story actually dropped at a very good time before the indictment. I know. I was very, <laughs> very grateful for, for Mr. You've Mueller re- for waiting <laughs> yeah, until our story came. Yeah, he was embargoing. It? <laughs> <laughs> so talk a little bit about that sort of, where are they in the sort of Kubler-Ross stages of grieving? I mean, are they at acceptance at this point?
1: I think they're at acceptance. Um, they went through denial, I think, fairly quickly. I mean, so the process of, well, they're they're grieving about their influence on the 2016 election or their influence over the media industry.
0: I would say it's both. I mean, they're intertwined.
1: They're intertwined, though slightly different. I'll talk about both of them. So I feel like with the 2016 election, there was, it was a real shock that happened all of a sudden. They didn't expect Trump to win once Trump won. So it was crisis time inside of Facebook. They're running back and forth between Mark and Cheryl's offices. They're trying to figure out, you know, did we do this? The executives had known that Trump was using Facebook more effectively than Hillary was. They still did not think that would lead him to win. Then he won, and they said, are we going to be blamed for it? So they had a brief stage of denial, and then they realized if they continued to deny it, they would mm-hmm. have mutiny in their ranks because—
0: Yeah. But, but talk about the denial because because uh, Zuckerberg came out and he was very dismissive about this. And I think this yeah. gets to the Silicon Valley divide uh, with, when it comes to really with media in New York, but just the rest of the world, because they are in a bubble there. You spend a lot more time there. And you talk in the story about how Zuckerberg, he looks at data yeah and he makes decisions based on data. And like it's like computing, computing, computing. This is ridiculous. And because he didn't see the data.
1: Yeah. So what happened right after the election, I think Zuck says, wait, you know, there are all these stories about fake news. And um, Craig Silverman at BuzzFeed had published all those great stories about fake news on Facebook. So the election happens and there's panic. How much of it was fake news? So Zuckerberg asks the people who run data for Newsfeed what percent of the content on Newsfeed was fake news? Was it sort of that Macedonian BS? And he gets back a number and it's a very small number. And so then he does an interview with David Kirkpatrick i don't know it's maybe two days after the election three days after the election and he says the idea that fake news had an influence on the election is pretty crazy pretty crazy is the exact quote Mm -hmm. and that's that itself was pretty crazy because actually is anybody really paying attention anybody who looked at the silverman data at the time realized that no actually it was pretty important um and so zuckerberg then uh you know, when he came back to his office, I think there are a few executives at Facebook who said both from a PR perspective and from a factual perspective, man, you got to you got to not say that
0: again. Mm-hmm. But a lot of that is this is just being politically tone deaf because yeah. they're moving into the political realm. Yeah. And in the political realm. You just can't do the computation and and work the numbers and go from that because politics work differently.
1: Yeah. So Facebook, I think, has learned much more. I mean, the, the last two years have been an education about their influence, their power, the ability to possibly flip an election. And then also a lot of understanding at Facebook about how to work with the government and all levels of government, which has been hard and new for them.
0: Mm-hmm. So how does that intersect with the role that they've played in the media industry? Because look, right. a lot of people in media are now using this to get back at Facebook.
1: Yeah. So the relationship with the media is even more complicated. And you know, we talk about the stages of grief. I think they're going through a different process with understanding their role in the media because they, they have a lot of complicated feelings towards the media. And to try to summarize this the best I can, I do think they genuinely want the news media to thrive. I do think that they genuinely think that they are more helpful than harmful to the news media, which I think is something that the news media would dispute. And I also think that they have a lot of resentments towards the news media because they they feel like the news media doesn't understand what they've done. They feel like they get blamed for things they shouldn't be blamed for. And they feel like You know it's a little bit again of the silicon valley versus new york divide right these are guys in the news media don't even know what an algorithm is and here Mm -hmm. they're lecturing us and then um all of those things you know play a role in their upcoming decisions and i think there's also one other factor and they won't talk about this or really admit this but they fear the news media because the news media despite being a small percentage of content on facebook has and also being in a bad economic situation uh has outsized political influence. And so Facebook's ultimate fear is, you know, getting broken up on antitrust or being poorly regulated. And they know that if that's going to happen, it's going to be driven by the news media. So they have an incentive to cultivate us in a way and to try to make sure we don't write stories mm-hmm. saying, break up Facebook.
0: Right, but they don't want to. I mean, because, I mean, you talked about how they view themselves as an open, neutral platform, as a, as a religious tenet. yeah. Right. And and to the news media and to the media in general, it's that that is always wrong hollow. They're making decisions. Algorithms are making decisions and you can't just hide behind the fact that it's an algorithm.
1: Yeah, you know, this is one of the animating questions, and it's come up on your podcast before is is Facebook a publisher or a platform? And my answer for the last couple of years has been, well, it's clearly both. Right. It's primarily a platform and it's taking on more of the responsibilities of being a publisher. You know, some people in the media industry sort of just say, it's a publisher and leave it at that. But that's not right. I mean, it is primarily a platform. And they have fewer responsibilities towards the stuff that a random person puts on Facebook than I, as the editor of Wired, have to a story on Wired. There's just, there is absolutely a fundamental difference. But that doesn't mean they have no responsibilities. And I think what they've come around to thinking over the last year is, oh, we need to do more. We need to act a little bit more like a publisher than we have. And I think that's a sensible move, and I applaud it.
0: Mm-hmm. So over the weekend, Facebook's VP of ads, uh, Rob <laughs> Goldman, um, went on Twitter and we actually I'm glad we wrote about this sort of charm offensive of sorts that um, Facebook executives were turning to Twitter yeah, ironically, in order to be more open, Adam Masseri is is out there. Uh, Rob Goldman is out there. Um, Rob Letherin is out there and a few others. Boz, Alex Stamos, a yeah. bunch of people. And, and they have different approaches. Like, yeah. Um, Boz is, is certainly a more um, combative <laughs> <laughs> uh, than the others. But, you know, Adam Masseri is, is the explainer and, and they all have different. And, it, and it's it's been nice because I think for a lot of times, you know, Facebook is just viewed as this Borg. I mean, as Google was before. And these are people. You know, yep. and they're struggling with the things and that's been nice. And yet when you wade into this kind of political area and, you know, Rob Goldman came out and he had a little bit of a, I guess it was a tweet storm, mm-hmm. um, in which he basically said that this had no role in, in affecting the election. It was, it was yeah. nuanced, but then Donald Trump took one of these tweets and used it for his own purposes. Right, yeah, so. A shitstorm then ensued.
1: So, there's so many interesting things in this. Yeah, I remember I saw Rob Goldman's tweets I was coming back from San Francisco, it was maybe one in the morning on Friday night, Saturday morning, I saw it, and "Hmm, that's kind of strange and interesting, and I just retweeted it, because it was strange and interesting, but.
0: And he had like 1800 followers.
1: Right, (laughs) and the, the first thing he tweeted is that, you know, Facebook, I don't have it in front of me, but Facebook ads, were mostly about dividing America and not about electing Trump. And there are two huge problems with that tweet. You know, I haven't seen all the ads, and he is the VP of ads, he has. But there are two huge problems. First, it's misleading because, as anybody who follows this closely knows, it's not about the ads, right? The ads are seen by 10 million people. The content was seen by 126 million people. Huge difference. Secondly, it's contrary to the Mueller indictment. So the Mueller indictment is a very detailed description of how Facebook was used by Russian operatives, to help Trump, right? And there are details about it. Um, and you know, it's incredibly in depth and clearly a lot of it came from Facebook, right? Because it's all about private messages sent on Facebook, things that presumably Facebook compiled and sent over to Mueller, whether under, you know, order or whether out of just simple cooperation. So the fact that this VP of Ads is out there putting out a misleading statement that runs contrary to the Mueller report was really risky. Mm-hmm. And if it hadn't been picked up, it would have been okay and an interesting debating point. And he did make some good points, and there's certainly some truth in it. But after it started to spread, and then certainly after it got picked up by Donald Trump, I think there's probably an amazing email thread at Facebook about whether he should throw his phone in the river, yeah. <laughs> whether he should even have a phone.
0: It might throw him in the river,
1: and whether whether Facebook executives should be mouthing yeah. off on Twitter. My understanding, you know, there's also a lot of debate about this on Twitter was, you know, was this a trial balloon? Was this an approved Facebook comm statement? It wouldn't be weird. No, it was just a guy and he screwed up.
0: Yeah. But I think, I don't know. I don't want to read too much into it, but it does sort of speak to, I mean, I had put that it was, it was, it was a little, it was tone deaf. Yeah. Like, because like, and, and that's what I sort of wonder because you're spending a lot more time in Silicon Valley now. And, and I've always sort of, amazed by this divide between Silicon Valley and, and sort of broadly quote unquote New York you know, yeah. media in that they don't seem to understand the power that they wield or in this situation the arena in which this has moved yeah. this has moved into politics this is real this is real important stuff
1: yeah I mean that was that at its core I mean you got at the problem with Rob Goldman's tweet if you're Rob Goldman you can you know you should tweet about Black Panther you should tweet about like the stuff you're doing you should tweet about general things you should not tweet about Robert Mueller's indictments right right particularly involving an election where your whole company plays an integral role if anybody at Facebook is going to tweet about that stuff it should be the people who are living in it not a VP of ads right there are a bunch of people at Facebook and all they do is they think about what happened with Russia. They think about how the company responded. They think about what they should do next. Maybe those people should tweet about it because they really understand it. Goldman is like on the outside. He's you know, a smart guy in a good position at Facebook, but that doesn't mean you should weigh in on this.
0: Right. No. I mean, and I guess what struck me was that it was the same sort of like, you know, technical sort of argumentative um, approach that, that like would be taken to like viewability standards, <laughs> Very important and good right. points and yeah. stuff like this, but this is a totally different realm. Yeah, that's, I mean, that's Robert hilarious. Mueller just dropped an indictment against thirteen uh, foreign actors about trying to to undermine democracy.
1: Right of the state with the second largest number of nuclear weapons in the world. Right, I mean, this is where you. You um you gotta be very careful.
0: So let's let's talk then about how Facebook's relationship with media because it's a big part of the yeah. story. Um, you said you know the the genesis of the story was really the Facebook Journalism Project. Yep. they brought on Campbell Brown. Um, they hired up a lot of people. You, yeah. um, the story has about Andrew Anker, who mm-hmm. is someone with a, lo- a long experience in media. Yeah, going back to pretty much the origins of internet media. Really, he's
1: one of the few people who. Really understands media and really understands Silicon Valley. It can work in both areas.
0: Yeah. So they they hired a bunch of people. They went on listening tours. They have a lot of people who do handholding with yeah. publishers, and they listen. Mm-hmm. They take publishers' complaints. They have dinners. Yeah, some nice places. They do. Has this been effective? In what sense? Has this been effective as anything more than a sort of PR exercise? In, in that, like, I think that publishers like to be. Um, heard from Mm -hmm. um one publisher in in the uk said to me facebook hires nice people to say nice things to us yeah and then they go and they make completely different decisions because the people who are talking to us don't actually have the power
1: i think i think that um there's probably some truth to that i do think facebook has listened and changed so to give one specific example there's the question of whether facebook should allow paywalls in instant articles and Zuckerberg for a long time was extremely resistant to that, right? Because paywalls, you know, don't make the world more open and connected. That's what he would say when people came in there. So they fought it, they fought it, they fought it. And it seemed like there's no chance. And then, you know, Campbell Brown goes on a listening tour. And it's right about the same moment where the whole view in the publishing industry of paywalls changes from like, that's something good for the Times and the Journal to like, that's something good for almost everybody, right? And it's going to be maybe our salvation as digital ad rates decline. So publishers are really pushing paywalls. Facebook kind of listens and so sometime in um you know sometime in the last year they agree that they're going to i, I would date it i'm guessing going to say spring of 17 zuckerberg finally agrees to allow there to be paywalls And about october they announced that they will allow paywalls an instant but they set it at an impossible level so nobody will ever hit it they say that you have to read 10 stories inside of facebook to hit a paywall so it becomes useless right so wired we just introduced a paywall and we decided not to participate in it because nobody's ever going to read 10 stories in a month. A very small number of people will read 10 stories in a month. But then last week, Facebook lowered it to five, presumably okay. because they got a whole bunch of pressure from publishers. So I do think that Facebook is listening. I don't think they're doing what all the publishers would want. And they listen in a couple of ways. They listen because they're tense dinners with Campbell Brown. And they also listen because Rupert Murdoch takes Zuckerberg to the woodshed every short yeah. while.
0: Right now, a quick break to hear from our sponsor. Today's sponsor is Airtable, the all-in-one collaboration platform. The content industry is constantly evolving, and to keep up, you need a tool that's flexible enough to adapt to your process, but powerful enough to keep everybody on the same page. Airtable is modern software. Airtable fields can handle any content you throw at them. Add attachments, long text notes, checkboxes, links to records in other tables, even barcodes. I promise you even barcodes, whatever you need to stay organized. That's why when the team at Time Inc. needed a tool to manage their entire creative process from ideation to content creation, they turned to Airtable. Airtable empowers you to do your work your way. Try it today. Just head to Airtable.com Digiday to receive $50 in free credits. There are helpful video tutorials to show Airtable in action. Visit the site. So that's actually an interesting part of the story. I think News Corp is playing a very interesting role with these platforms um, at the very top levels with with Robert Thompson, um, very vocal.
1: Oh yeah. So that that so yeah. What News Corp is absolutely willing to admit is that they will use their executives and they'll put you know um, public pressure on these companies. They were happy to testify, and Murdoch and Thompson have had real courage in this debate to stand up for their convictions because you know one of the things one of the incredibly weird things that underlies this whole conversation and this whole relationship is that people in the media industry are scared that Facebook will kill them that there is a little dial in an office at Facebook and when you write something critical about Facebook they will turn it to the left and your traffic will die and that underlies a lot of this Facebook denies it has that knob But everybody thinks they've killed
0: killed things before. They they killed killed the social gaming industry. They killed Upworthy, right? So
1: they're earning kill off Upworthy. But they Eli was just on here. They massively (laughs) damaged (laughs) Upworthy. And yeah, but they clearly have the power when they're upset at something to turn a dial and hurt them. And so,
0: or maybe it's less that they're upset or where their interests diverge. And because I think Facebook is so gigantic that they're. If they sort of like any giant, like if a giant moves, it might accidentally step on you know, some tiny little creature. But right. th- th- it was just moving. That's funny.
1: Yeah, that 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 is the risk. Um, yeah, but so back to the main point. You know, there are a lot of big media companies that go to a lot of meetings with Facebook, and it's News Corp that pulled out the whip. So, from a journalistic perspective, there's. You know, there are a lot of people in this industry who should be grateful for Murdoch and Thompson, even though there may not be uh, favorite folks of everybody.
0: Okay. And we're actually seeing a lot more people. I mean, look, BuzzFeed built its business yeah. off of Facebook. And when Jonah Peretti is out there saying, you know, repeatedly that Facebook is not doing a good enough job... Paying it because it, it is trying to you know look it's it's saying oh all these different surfaces well yeah. the surface that makes all the money is Newsfeed and and they're not making m- enough money off of Newsfeed. Oh, that was
1: super interesting. Jonah Peretti's letter, which was showed both evolution of the media and Facebook, and also the evolution of Buzzfeed from the place that everybody in media complained about taking everything away on Facebook to the place to becoming one of the complainers.
0: Right. <laughs> Everyone becomes a complainer. I think yeah. that's the big uh, that's the big uh, lesson there. Uh, more talk about carriage fees. Yeah. Um, so this is the latest, um, Salvo, uh, from, from Murdoch, um, says, okay, if you want our content, pay us a fee.
1: Yeah. So that's kind of the same argument he made against Google a couple years ago. So on the one hand, yeah, there's a lot to recommend to that Facebook has all the money the media industry doesn't have the money Facebook is actively you know taking away the whole digital ad market because they've built a really good ad platform you know a large reason why digital publishing is not succeeding the way it was is because of you know the way ads have shifted to Google and Facebook on the other hand is it actually good for the media industry to be getting checks from Facebook I mean then what happens to our independence right if Murdoch gets that and we do start getting carriage fees, and it's a significant portion of our budget, then think about the crazy dynamic we're gonna have, right? Then think about the threat. When we put an image like we put on our current cover and 11,000 words that can be read as being critical of Facebook, then what happens, they not only have a dial over our traffic, perhaps, they also have our carriage fees. Mm-hmm. I mean, you get some very weird dynamics if Facebook starts paying publishers directly. So. I can see why Murdoch said that, but
0: long term, beware of what you wish for.
1: Beware of what you wish for, right? So, is what you know part of what I wonder here is? You know, the media has a lot of solutions for Facebook. They all involve Facebook getting deeper into media. So, is that what we want?
0: Mm-hmm. Well, I think the ideal would be a more independent future, but is that how practical is that? Let's let's tie this back to to Wired because you, you you've rolled out um, a paywall, yeah. Um, and so every single media um, entity is trying to figure out an, a more independent future, right, and one that is less ad dependent. Mm-hmm. So talk about that talk about that decision, but also, I mean, you've like one foot in both worlds, right? Yeah, one so, foot in
1: both yeah, it's funny. Yeah. It's like part of the you know reporting and reading and knowledge that informed my story was the fact that I've had to do Facebook and digital publishing strategy for the last five years, and then reporting the story also informs my digital publishing strategy for the next couple of years. I guess every couple of years I should report a big story exactly. on Facebook and kind of help my education. So we launched the paywall at the beginning of February. And like a lot of publishers, we did it because we want to diversify our revenue streams, because we think we have a loyal reader base. Early evidence has been absolutely fantastic. And also because I strongly believe that when you have paid content, you then have aligned your editorial incentives with your business incentives. The things that get people to subscribe are writing in-depth stories that people couldn't find elsewhere, having them fall in love with your publication, right? Those are all pure, good, wonderful things that you want to do as a journalist. why we got into this profession, everybody on staff at Wired wants to write the kind of stories that make people subscribe. So aligning those incentives is great. From the Facebook perspective, what I would like most is I would like a Facebook, right? So where I differ from... Murdoch and many other people in this industry is that I think the fundamental thing that I want Facebook to do Is to change newsfeed and I don't mean by turning a dial I mean through like consistent and persistent work over years so that newsfeed rewards quality content Not stuff that just inflames us and makes us outraged and that Mm. is the fundamental problem with newsfeed If you write a good detailed story about something that isn't on the moment, it will not travel on Facebook Even though it makes people feel informed, even though it makes people feel like they've been educated, the way that newsfeed is set up, the way that we share on Facebook, the whole structure of the platform, our habits when we use that platform, do not let that content do well, or that content almost always doesn't do well. Over time, I hope by changing the way newsfeed is measured, by changing the you know, data points that go in to create Newsfeed. I hope mm-hmm. that Newsfeed can be a place where quality thrives. And that would be the best thing they could do.
0: So on an optimistic note, if Facebook is changing from optimizing for engagement to optimizing for uh, this time well spent, yeah, then theoretically those interests would align better.
1: Yes, exactly. And that's one of the things that, you know, this story of mine, you know, it's been praised by bunch of people and it's been criticized you know the smartest criticism um has been from my friends you say you give them too much credit right because the story the story is critical it gets deep inside it, you know puts out a lot of secrets i'm sure facebook doesn't want out there but then at the end it says they're making good changes the end
0: is very is very hopeful
1: because they're doing just what i said i mean just what i said i wanted them to do so focusing on time well spent that gets you moves you in that direction towards prioritizing quality content prioritizing trustworthiness Again, the same thing. Prioritizing informantness, right? Mm-hmm. Have readers actually learn something when they've read your stories. That moves in the same direction too. So they're starting to introduce a bunch of metrics that get you closer to newsfeed actually helping quality re- go out in the world as opposed to garbage.
0: I, I, just, I guess, and maybe, maybe this is some of the sort of criticisms. I wonder if at the scale Facebook is whether they can fix it.
1: Well, that Okay, so that's, that's the other critique, which is, so critique A of my story that is like totally believable and legit is you got kind of conned and you're too optimistic.
0: Critique <laughs> too B, much time
1: in Silicon Valley. Now. Too much time in Silicon Valley. Definitely. I've definitely heard that. Critique B is you're idealistic. You think that maybe they can do that, but this is a train going 100 miles an hour in the wrong direction. What they've said is they're going to repaint the interior, right? That was something Tristan Harris said in an um, interview with him that I did recently at a public event. Um, Or Tristan Harris's co-founder of time well spent basically there is a critique that Facebook cannot change and Facebook will not change and they've gone so far and so fast in the direction made so much money That they're not going to change the whole structure of newsfeed to promote quality publications My sense is that's wrong they will and they can or certainly they can and I hope they will so Mm -hmm. that's that's the that to me is the most important thing for this industry to watch
0: so which uh, external pressure do you think will impact that the most is it the threat of regulation whether yeah, it's here in question. europe is it you know look everyone is grasping at straws or saying oh people are spending less time on facebook and you know maybe it's finally going to recede and people are going to get sick of of um of spending all their time on facebook um or is it Actual? Is it something else? Is it other external pressure? I don't think. I don't think media pressure. Uh, no offense to Rupert Murdoch is going to actually. Um, I think it have some impact. I mean, has some impact. So
1: yeah, threat of European style regulation is huge. You know, if that actually seems like it might be coming, and it seems like they can head it off, that that will be a big thing. Another factor that's really important is the emotions and desires of the engineers who work at Facebook, right? So the fundamental issue they have is they need to retain the people, you know, age 20 through 40 who code for them because those people can all go work for Snap. They can go work for startups. And if they feel like Facebook is hurting the world, not helping it, right? Right. They will leave. So they
0: don't want to work for a tobacco company.
1: They don't want to work. Exactly. So if they start to believe they're working for a tobacco company, then that's a big problem. That's something that one of the most You know, people haven't really picked up on this in the story, but one of the sort of the most emotionally resident moments for me in the story is we reported the scene that hadn't been reported of um, around Thanksgiving of this year when Zuckerberg tells everybody, you know, you're going to go home and people are going to ask you, you know, Mm -hmm. about Facebook's role in the world. And it's a sort of a, I think, a really deep moment. And it's part about this, right? He's trying to reassure them. You know, your family used to say you work at the coolest places in the world. Now they think you work for a tobacco mm-hmm. company. Like, that's a big deal. The other thing that is a huge influence is just the existence and potential re-election of Donald Trump. And because Facebook, they're not partisan in the sense that they would never, I mean, they're they're probably mostly predominantly liberal Democrats, right? They're out in Silicon Valley working for a tech company. Um, but they wouldn't be having an existential crisis if Marco Rubio were president. The issue is that Zuckerberg created this thing to make the world more open and connected. Donald Trump is making the world more tribal, right? He is fundamentally... You could not find a person with a worldview less aligned with Mark Zuckerberg's than Donald Trump. And so I think... And he's
0: also very effective at using platforms, particularly Twitter. Yeah, he's very very effective
1: at all of that. And so he's Mark Zuckerberg's nightmare at like a really profound level. And so I think... His election certainly spurred a lot of the reforms at Facebook. And I think if Facebook, you know, deep down, part of the reason why there's hope for change is them looking at the world, not saying how can we get somebody else to defeat Donald Trump, but how did we help make a world that elected somebody like Donald Trump and how can we help make a different world? I think that's that's really important.
0: So the biggest pressure will just come from engineers not wanting to work at Facebook.
1: It'll come from engineers not wanting to work at Facebook, the threat of regulation, and Mark Zuckerberg lying awake at night looking at the ceiling wondering if he helped elect Donald mm-hmm. Trump.
0: Can you see a scenario in which Facebook in some ways is broken up?
1: Yeah, I can. And this, here I'm on Facebook's side, um, absolutely. So... There are a lot of people, you know, you read Frank Ford's book. There are a lot of really smart people who think it's the time to break up big tech. And I totally agree that there's the consolidated power Mm -hmm. is bad. It's bad for innovation. It's bad for America. It's bad for all sorts of things. But who's going to break up big tech? It's going to be Jeff Sessions' Justice Department, Right. It's going to be Paul Ryan's Congress and Mitch McConnell's Senate. Do we trust these people to know anything
0: about how to break up yeah. Facebook and to do it right? If Facebook thought that media didn't understand uh, a API from an algorithm, wait right. till they get to it. Wait,
1: wait till they're in a meeting with Jeff Sessions and he's like, okay, we're <laughs> going to split you up so that there is you know, one group that does VR, one group that does news feed, and one group that does ads. I mean, it would just be a nightmare. So I would like power to spread more in silicon valley i would like there to be more competition i don't trust our government to go and do that
0: so google is sitting there um, and they're like hey we look pretty good after all this you know and they are um uh lucia moses here is actually working on a story today about all the things that they're doing to cozy up to publishers because they have an opening
1: Mm -hmm. they they (laughs) have yeah google the you know you would have Google hasn't had the best year. I mean, we keep hearing about James Damore and all the sort of issues at Google, but yeah, their issues are much smaller and nobody, nobody blames them for the huge existential or few people blame them for the huge existential crises we have in this country. So, well, actually I should break that out. People do blame YouTube. That's true. um, Though not nearly to the extent they blame Facebook, even though in many ways, YouTube is becoming nearly as influential as Facebook and has all of these um, same problems and concerns. Um, but yeah, so working with publishers, Google has always been way out ahead of this. And Google has mm-hmm. always been much more open. In fact, the Facebook Journalism Project, as explained to us, was a way to copy Google's news lab. Now, Google is years and years ahead of Facebook in a couple of ways. One, ranking publishers by quality, right? The trustworthiness stuff that Facebook is introducing is something that Google has had for years, right? Subscriptions, Facebook's finally coming around to it. Google just put them right into AMP, right? So AMP and Facebook Instant are competitive products. Right from the beginning, Google just said, hey, we'll do what you want to do, publishers, and we'll make it relatively easy for you. So um, Google has much better relationships with the industry. They're much further out ahead of it. Mm -hmm. And And double click.
0: Double click helped a lot, right? Because they they understood like uh, publishers' businesses like far better, yeah. right? And Google's, I mean, it, it
1: ties back to their fundamental incentives, right? Google's fundamental incentive is to make the open web a good place, so that people go and they search and they see ads, which means they actually want publishers to thrive. Facebook's incentive is to get everybody to move everything inside of Facebook, which is a fundamentally different goal and has led from the beginning to more tension with publishers that have these websites, which would like to, you know, exist on the open web.
0: Mm-hmm. So final thing is just going back to, to, to the Wired, um, paywall and just, just about everyone, uh, not everyone, but most, I would say, you know, premium publishers at some point have, uh, have rolled out at this point, some kind of membership subscription paywall, yeah. call it what you want. Um, how does this impact? I mean, cause Wired writes about, you know, the open web, how does this impact The open web when people are going to be going and constantly hitting walls
1: yeah I mean that's right information wants to be free right that's the one of the founding creators of wired and it's one of the things but is it true well remember the second half of that quote information also wants to be expensive right (laughs) okay so um you know wired actually from the beginning talked a lot about paid content. It charged a ton for newsstand copies. When we launched this paywall, the founders of Wired sent me a note saying, this is exactly what you've got to do. So does it counter the values of the open web? Sure. You know, a little bit, you know, it makes it a little harder for people to move from publication to publication. But on the other hand, if all these publishers go out of business, um, what does that do for the open web, right? What does that do for the free flow of information and all the, not just those publisher sites, but all the places that Depend on them to seed their ecosystem. So I I, I don't fear that we're sort of countering a core value of the world that Wired has long espoused and believed in. You know, anybody can come read four Wired stories a month. There's not, it's not like a paywall right on the first story. You know, information is around. Mm -hmm. So um And I think this is an essential part of the media industry surviving. And the media industry surviving is an essential part of civil society working and the web being a good place and people being able to distinguish fact from fiction, which is one of the main roles that media plays. So
0: it's a reasonable compromise.
1: It's a reason it's a more than reasonable compromise. And I think I think I think it's a good thing to do
0: on that. uh, The New York Times be getting a ton of grief for for its opinion page from various quarters, mostly. Mostly from from New York quarters, and look, they're trying to make it more, um, I guess, diverse in in the New York Times way, which is like to have more voices that are are conservative or go after people who wear yoga pants. I think this weekend was <laughs> one of their articles, the "Case Against Yoga Pants." This inflames this inflames the Upper West Side and various other quarters. Yeah. Um, and then you have people canceling their subscriptions. Is there a risk that the paywall? The, the idea is that you align with subscriptions, you align more closely with your audience, right. but at the same time, there could be a, a point where that just means you're just telling your audience what your audience wants to hear.
1: Oh, that's a really interesting, complicated question. Um, my sense is that there will be some pressure if you have a paywall to align with your audience, tell them what you want to hear, just as with subscription business models in the few, in the past, on the other hand, the nature of a paywall is you're always trying to bring in new people and reach new audiences and grow in different directions. so I think there's also the opposite pressure, and that may be why part of what's incentivizing the times to you know go out and hire you know temporarily Quinn Norton or Brett Stevens or some of the people who have <laughs> for like three hours yeah <laughs> yeah um who have inflamed people um on the other hand, I also think that some of the outrage and heat at the um Times opinion section ties back to what we've been talking about before, which is the you know ability of social media to massively amplify outrage yeah. uh, in ways that aren't healthy. And the Times should have a wide diversity of opinions on its opinion page. That's the point of an opinion page, right? I grew up loving reading William Sapphire, for example. Yeah, They should have that. They should be able to do that. Whether they've executed it exactly the right way isn't for me to comment on, but it's um, they should definitely be able to have a broad ranging opinion page and have the internet accept that.
0: Okay, Nick, thanks so much for joining us.
1: Thanks for having me. It was really fun to talk with you.
0: And thank you all for listening. This podcast is produced by Aditi Sengal. If you liked our show, and I hope you did, please don't forget to subscribe and leave us a review on iTunes, Stitcher, or Google Play. We really do appreciate those reviews and ratings. And also, another reminder about Digiday Plus, our premium membership product. Our magazine will be coming out. We have a quarterly magazine. It's going to be coming out um, in about a month. So if you subscribe, you'll get it. Um, You'll also get invites to the member events, um, access to our Slack community, and exclusive research. Um, Our next member event is with USA Today on March 1st at their headquarters in Midtown Manhattan. Uh, I'm going to be playing a bit of a game with uh, their CRO, Kevin Gensel. It is called The Wheel of Truth. It is very entertaining and Informative. So, to find out more, please visit digiday.com. You will see the Digiday Plus tab in the menu bar. Click on that and it will take you to the page that will tell you all about this fantastic product. It is a mere $395, but if you want a 25% discount, enter the code PODCAST at checkout. Thanks again. See you next week.